This is Ralph Carhart, the author of The Hall Ball, and you are listening to Baseball and Barbecue. to episode 112 of Baseball and BBQ. I'm your host, Jeff Cohen. I'm here with my my co-host, Leonard Aberman. How you doing, Leonard? I'm doing great, Jeff. That that music in the beginning of the show, was that Sweet Caroline? Sweet Caroline. Bom, bom, bom. That's kind of the, uh, the theme song for a particular team, right? They kind of have adapted that as their theme song, would you say? If you go to Fenway Park, in the eighth inning, they will play that song, and the whole stadium gets into it. Yes. And why do you bring that up? I, you know what, Jeff? Because <laughs> there's everything. Everything has a, a, a meaning and, and a reason. Did you say this is episode 112 of Baseball and BBQ? 112. Where the BBQ stands for barbecue? That does, yes. It does, it does stand for it. Okay. We have on John Vampatella who wrote a book called The Forgotten Game, and it's about Game 5 of the 2004 American League Championship Series. This is an episode, this is an interview that a certain fan base may not want to listen to. (laughs) It is the series back in 2004 where the Yankees took a 3-0 lead in a playoff game, and no, no team has ever blown a three-games-to-zero lead. In a, in a playoff series until 2004. And they talk about game four. That's the game where Dave Roberts would sail the base. They talk about game six, which is the bloody sock game. They talk about game seven, which is the Red Sox uh, won. But game five, you know, it's kind of the forgotten game. You know, they yes. should have read a book about that, the forgotten game. It's a 14 inning game. And you know, it's amazing, Jeff. You mentioned Dave Roberts. The same Dave Roberts that I believe is now managing the Los Angeles Dodgers. That is correct. Right. Kurt Schilling, the same Kurt Schilling with the Bloody Sock, who is this is his last year of eligibility for the uh, National Baseball Hall of Fame. On the on, and, the, play, on, on the players uh, ballot. Yes. Yes. Yes, of course. So it's just amazing how time just flies. It really seems like that was just yesterday. Yeah. And John, so that's John, amazing. Van, John Van Patella wrote a, a great book. And yes. he, he, wound, he, he also 
intertwined stories of baseball within the book. And, and it's 14 chapters, which represent 14 innings. Right. A really good book. Yeah, he breaks them all down. I mean, we're going to talk all about it, but every inning and adds a lot of side stuff. It's it's really great. But also on this episode, we have Vic Clevenger, who it never ceases to amaze me. The people that we have on this show and just how wonderful they are. Vic Clevenger is somebody who is I think I called him in the intro. He's like a renaissance man, renaissance man of barbecue. He does it all. And he just he's extremely entertaining. He he was just somebody that we're going to have back on the show. So I'm telling you right now, he is going to be a return guest. Yes, because we get finished with the interview and we didn't even get to ask him about the sauces, his sauce. And he's one of those guests. There's like, well, we're not talking baseball. Cincinnati Reds. I watched I, I, I grew up watching the Reds. Yeah, the Reds, yes. So, you know, we we totally I mean, we had him on for a long time, so couldn't go on and on and on, but we've got to have him back. Absolutely. Len, I have a question for you. If people wanted to reach us, how do they do it? They do it the way you tell them to do it, because Jeff, I'm not taking that from you. That's <laughs> your thing. Go ahead. You tell them. <laughs> Phone number is 516-855-8214. Our email is baseballandbbq at gmail.com. We have a Facebook page, Baseball and BBQ. The Twitter, you know, when you like to tweet, tweet, at Baseball and BBQ. Instagram, Baseball and Barbecue, or Barbecue is all spelled out. Website, www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. And Len, please, what? Rate and review us yes. yes and you know and it's funny i listen to some podcasts and they say and give us five stars if we earn five stars give us five stars but you know it's like give me an a give me an a on the test but you know it's funny you you i, I just don't want to take that from you you do that very well yeah, but something that i do well i think is to tell you guys about our partners who are the Baseball Pandemic Book Club, or the Pandemic Baseball Book Club. Many of our authors uh, are from there. Uh, is John Van Patella from the... Uh... No, he is not. Okay. Well, he should be. He should be part of that club. Go on their site, buy the books and their swag. And then, of course, there is BaseballBBQ.com for their grilling tools and accessories. The holidays are coming up. And... I, I can't think of a person who loves baseball and loves barbecue and would not like to have a spatula or tongs or a fork with a baseball bat handle. I mean, how Jeff, we have these tools. And every time we take these tools out at a barbecue, what is it for? Wow. Where'd you get that? That is so cool. Right. Exactly. Yes. That's, you ask me that all the time. Yeah. All the time. All the time. <laughs> And then, of course, there is fifthandcherry.com. Beautiful, just gorgeous cutting boards. They're, they're like works of art. So check them out. All three of those, if, you're, if you are trying to think what to get the person in your life that has everything, go, go to any one of those sites and you'll find something for the person in your life that has everything. And with that, here is John Vampatella. John Vampatella, 
a graduate of Syracuse University, is the author of three books, including his latest, The Forgotten Game. He currently works in sports ministry at the University of Connecticut with Athletes in Actions. He's married with four adult kids. He's a lifelong Red Sox fan and a baseball fan. Welcome to Baseball and BBQ, John. Thanks, Welcome, John. John. Great, great to be here. I appreciate the time. So before we got on air, you said you're from New York area, but how did you become a Red Sox fan? Yeah, so I was born on Long Island in places familiar to you guys, Bay Shore, and then I, I spent the first four years of my life in Babylon. My dad was an airline pilot. Uh, he was born in New York and his, the son of an immigrant, Italian immigrant. And at some point, he decided he wanted to get out of Long Island. And so he moved the family to Maine, of all places. And, you know, I was four at the time, so I didn't have any baseball knowledge at the age of four. He was a big Yankee fan, big Joe DiMaggio fan. So we moved to Maine, which is, you know, the heart of Red Sox country. And by the time I was old enough to start thinking about baseball, start learning about baseball, start playing it in T-ball and Little League, you know, all the people around me, except for my dad, were Red Sox fans. And so it, the, the gravity of, of the community and my friends started pulling me in the Red Sox direction. Of course, my dad's you know, affinity for the Yankees was another mm-hmm. factor. But to his credit, he let me grow into whatever fan I was going to grow into. He could have pushed me in the, in the Yankee direction, but he never did that. He just let me organically become whatever fan I ended up becoming. And as a kid, I ended up, this is you know before ESPN and that sort of stuff. And I remember I would fall asleep at night in the summers listening to Red Sox games on the radio. And then when I woke up in the morning, I would check the newspaper and being in Maine, you know, the main story in the sports section was the Red Sox. And, you know, the Yankees fit into like other scores, you know, in the American League. And so all the players that I knew about were were, Yank- were uh, Red Sox players. And, you know, I started to get to know them, become fans of them. And it just really just kind of happened that I, would, I fell into being a Red Sox fan. I, at that point in my life, I didn't really... <laughs> Uh, understand the torture and torment that I was going to go through as a Red Sox fan for several decades, partly, you know, at the hands of your Mets in 1986. So yeah, it's been a long road as a Red Sox fan, but I just give my dad a lot of credit. He could have, he could have pushed me into being a Yankee fan and he didn't. Uh-huh. He let me be whatever fan I ended up becoming. And, and now the part of the podcast where Len will explain to you what happened with my kid. Exactly. <laughs> that, you know what? We, it, that is how well we know each other. Exactly. I was going to say, great dad. And you're talking to Jeff Cohen, who has the same situation, similar situation. Jeff being a huge Met fan and has two sons. One doesn't care about baseball and the other has a cousin who is a big Yankee fan and looked up to that cousin and became a big Yankee fan. So Jeff doesn't do anything to discourage it. As a matter of fact, he takes him to Yankee games. He, I mean, he just like your dad. So uh, <laughs> you, you guys yeah. have that in common. Yeah, that's, that's, that's great. That's good. I would consider that to be good parenting. And it, oh, it, in some ways it makes for just really interesting relationship between father and son. Right. So my, my dad and I, neither of us have ever been trash talkers. Uh, And if I ever was a trash talker with the Red Sox, that would have been foolish because, you know, up until 2004, you know, they never got the upper hand. Right. So especially Red Sox versus Yankees. So it would have been silly for me to do that, but you know, he never really talked trash with me either. And yet we had this fun dynamic and we still do. So like even this year, you know, I'll call him, Hey dad, how's things going? And he'll say, Oh, you know, terrible Yankees lost. I'm like, good, good. 
We need more of that. And it'll laugh, but it's like, but that's the extent of it, right? And so it really has helped form a really fun component to our relationship. You know, the, the baseball yeah. rivalry, friendly rivalry. Yes, absolutely. And, and great segue too. the book, The Forgotten Game, which is about game five of the 2004 American League Championship Series. Now, we all remember game four, whereas it was Dave Roberts who stole base and game yep. six with the bloody sock. And yep. game seven with the uh, home runs by Johnny Damon with the Grand Slam at Yankee Stadium. But game five, as the title of the book says, the forgotten game. But this was a very pivotal game. So what was the inspiration to you for you to write this book? Well, as a Red Sox fan, obviously the 2004 team, you know, is, is the most important Red Sox team of my lifetime. You know, and remember, there had been 86 years between Red Sox championships. So an entire you know, generation of people had been born rooted for the Red Sox for 80 something years and died never having seen a championship. And so a lot obviously has been written about the 2004 team, the personalities, the season, the, even that American league championship series, but very little has been written about that particular game for the reasons you mentioned, Jeff, like everyone remembers games four, six, and seven, but game five kind of gets lost in the shuffle, even though I think it was one of the great baseball games that's ever been played, especially given the stakes. And so I just thought, you know what? It would be really fun to do a deep dive into that game, to really examine it, look into it, rewatch it a bunch of times, and tell the story of that game that most people, even a lot of Red Sox fans, are fuzzy about You know the details of it. So it was really a fun project for me to work on. And I just wanted to tell the story of a game that you know, had kind of gotten lost in the shuffle. John, how many times you mentioned uh, rewatched it a number of times? How many times did you have to watch it for this book? Oh, easily a dozen. And then within the dozen, I had to re- rewind plays because I, I ended up quoting the uh, the broadcasters a fair amount. And so I had to get to make sure I get the, the quotes correctly. But, you know, there are just so many details. And, you, you know, being baseball fans, there's so much going on at any moment in time. The the way a fielder is positioned or, you know, a pitch being off the plate by an inch. And that changes the count from possibly one and two to two and one. And that changes the entire inning. Right. And so there's just a lot there to uh, get into in terms of detail. And I wanted to make sure I captured as much of it as I could. So it, w- it was a lot of watching. But the crazy thing was, it was such a tense game that, you know, of course, even though I knew the outcome in some key moments, I still found myself like gripping my chair, like, oh, my gosh, this is super intense. So it was no less fun watching it the 12th time. You also, you also quoted the radio broadcast. So how did you get a copy of that to go back and listen to those? Of the radio broadcast? Of the radio broadcast, yeah. Yeah, they, they're just online and, and available to, to listen to. And so I wanted to make sure I got, I captured it from a variety of angles because sometimes radio broadcasts are a little more enjoyable and fun. And, you know, just it, it helped, I don't know, bring bring the flavor of the game a little bit closer to home instead of just describing the action. Because I think the announcers tend to really help. If, they do, if they're doing their job well, they really help the viewer or the listener really grasp what's going on and it, it adds to the game. I want to ask you before game five, there was game four, and it was obvious we know that Dave Roberts made the pivotal play to steal second base. How come no one ever talks about the blown save by Mariano Rivera? We hear him, the greatest relief pitcher of all time, and we hear about some of the big blown saves, but this one we never hear about. About game, the blown save in game, in game four, four or game five? Yeah, in game four. Well, 
I think Red Sox fans talk a lot about it <laughs> because it was, you know, Rivera is the greatest relief pitcher of all time, but he's not infallible. He's not perfect. And in fact, of all the teams that Rivera had to face, the Red Sox really did over the course of his entire career, did a pretty respectable job against him. There were, there were some big regular season games where they managed to touch him up. And obviously this, this playoff win in game four was pretty important. I just think no matter how great you are, you're, you're not going to be perfect. And so I think the bigger blown save in his career was game seven of the 2001 World Series where he lost to the Diamondbacks. That was a bigger moment, right? Because that literally lost them the World Series. And this one, you know, even though they blew game four, they still had three more chances to win the series. And so it really wasn't like, I don't think too many Yankee fans walked away from game four thinking, oh no, we've lost the series. And I don't think too many Red Sox fans walked away from game four thinking, oh, we just won the series. But game seven of the 01 World Series, like it was, it was the season ender. It was the World Series ending play. I think part of it too is that he, he pitched in so many big games and so many playoff games that even if he, he blows a couple of them, I mean, he has so many saves that it, I don't think too many people hold that against him. Right. And I just want to remind people, 2004 was the year the Yankees won the first three games of the series and the Red Sox won the last four. It's the first time it's ever been done, a team coming back from down 3-0 to win the series. In this case, it's a championship series. So that's why this this series was was so so great. Looking at the line score, the Red Sox scored two runs in the bottom of the first. One of them, like Mike Messina, I believe, was a starting pitcher. He he walked in a run. And yep. could you remind us who drove in the other run? I think it was Dave Ortiz. Let's see who drove in that run in in the was it the first inning you're talking first about, inning. right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to actually look that up. It was Ortiz drove in, right? Yep, uh, Orlando Cabrera, and right. uh, and then Veritek walked to score the uh, the second run. John, when you write a book like this, to take one game and make it interesting to you did something that that it's not an easy task to do to take inning by inning you insert facts about the different players and you actually make it very interesting it's almost like the game took on a new perspective to me i have seen the game not as many times as you have but but i definitely have a different view of it now that i've read your book that had to be a difficult thing, actually, to to dissect a game inning by inning and make it interesting. Well, baseball, as you guys know, is the kind of sport that's slow, right? And it's it's not basketball where it's up and down the court or even football that feels like there's just this intense energy every play. Baseball has its slow moments, and that game was super long, right, over five and a half hours long. So there, there's a lot of downtime. And that's one reason why I'll say that I think Red Sox-Yankees playoff games are just, I mean, it puts you through the grist mill as a, as a fan, right? Because it's, it's long and drawn out. It's one reason why I think baseball playoffs are just the best, because you have so much time to sit and digest things. And I, I wanted to make sure that I didn't just go pitch by pitch and just call the game, because there's so much there. When you, when you guys are sitting in the stands watching a, a Met game, you're not just talking about the action on the field. You're talking about the players. You're talking about, oh, that time that I met Jacob deGrom outside the stadium. Or you're talking about, remember that game he pitched? Or, you know, I still can't believe we traded for Lindor, you know, or or, or whatever. Like, like you, you know, these, I don't know if they signed him as a 
free agent. I can't remember, but you get the idea, right? There's so much conversation going on about the players, about the circumstances, about the situation. But even in between, you know, batters and pitches, we were discussing amongst ourselves baseball strategy, right? How long are they going to let Eduardo Rodriguez go? You know, who's warming up in the bullpen? Is that the right guy to bring in? I don't know. What? And so I wanted to capture all of that, all of what a fan might be thinking during a game or talking about during a game besides just the actual action on the field. And the other thing from this postseason is there were two big players that had, I mean, you've got Bill Buckner, of course, that for the rest of his life was, you know, reminded constantly of that game used it in a positive way. I mean, we, we've had other people on and they've spoken about that. But Donnie Moore was another figure that from, from that series. And Donnie Moore ended up taking his own life. And from what you write in the book, the home run that he gave up had a supposedly that he was never got over that and contributed to him taking his life. Yeah, that was in, that was in 86, right? And mm-hmm. That, that's just tragic. I, I, I've never been a professional athlete. I can't imagine the pressure that these guys are under. They're getting paid a lot of money, but there are millions of people whose hopes and dreams, rightly or wrongly, hinge on their performances. And when they fail, and inevitably failure is part of life and failure is part of sport, some people just can't deal with that. And it's, it's, it's sad, super sad, because at the end of the day, really, it's just a game, really. And so you think about it and it's like, wow, is that really worth going into a a tailspin like some of these guys do? They take their losses so hard. I work with college athletes and it's, it's one of the things I talk about all the time is that your identity is not your, you know, you're an athlete. That's what you do, but that's not who you are because someday you're not going to be an athlete anymore. And what then? right? Even if you have a long pro career, most of your life is going to be spent not as an athlete. So you have to find your identity in something other than your sport. And maybe for Donnie Moore, he, he never got to that point. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a, that was a hard story to tell. Absolutely. Getting back to the, this game, this game had its share of, of stars on both sides, Pedro, David Ortiz, Derek Jeter, and they all played a part in, in this game. Pedro started and he got in trouble in the sixth inning where that nemesis, Derek Jeter, had, a, I believe, a double and drove it in three runs to take the lead. And I think you, I'm not sure, if, I don't remember what, if it was in the sixth inning or not, but Francona had to make a choice uh, to leave Pedro in or not. Could you go into that? Yeah, it, it, was, it was a key moment, sixth inning. Pedro had been pitching well, but Pedro was a brilliant pitcher, but in, by 2004, he was no longer the great Pedro Martinez. He was a really good pitcher, but he wasn't the all-time great Pedro. He just, you know, he had gotten to the point in his career where, where he was, uh, he declined a little bit. And he, he, he got through five innings, but they weren't easy. As always, the Yankees made life a little bit hard for him. And so in the sixth inning, he was nearing the 100 pitch mark, which for him was kind of the witching hour, right? And uh, it, there was just something about, at that point in his career, him hitting 100 pitches, problems arose at that point. And so as the Yankees started getting runners on and Pedro was nearing the 100 pitch mark, Francona had a decision to make. Do I keep Pedro in or not? Now, factors involved in this decision, right? This is a fascinating choice. Pedro, even a diminished Pedro, was still a great pitcher. The bullpen had been burned up 
the Yankees bludgeoned the Red Sox in game three, 19 to eight. So Red Sox bullpen was tired game four. They used a ton of relievers. And so it, it was a worn out bullpen and, you know, you still have a really good pitcher on the mound, but he's nearing the hundred pitch mark. I don't think this was a factor in Francona's decision-making, but as a fan, I can tell you, I was definitely thinking about 2003 in game seven of the 2003 ALCS. Pedro was pitching brilliantly through seven innings. He had a, he had a five, two lead as he came out for the bottom of the eighth. We all thought he was going to be done in the bottom of the seventh. We thought he, he was going to be finished after seven innings, but Grady little, the manager at the time for the Red Sox left him in the eighth and the Yankees proceeded to rally. Mm-hmm. And it, it cost Grady little his job. It cost the Red yep. Sox a chance to the world series. So now 2004, the same thing is happening, right? The Red Sox have a lead. The Yankees are starting to mount a rally and Pedro's nearing that hundred pitch mark, just like in Oh three. And <laughs> Terry Francona makes the same exact choice that Grady little does. And he leaves Pedro in for at least a batter too long. And Jeter gets the hit. And, you know, I think if the Red Sox had lost that game, Francona would have probably been fired just like Grady Little was for making the same exact mistake. We, I can tell you as a fan, I couldn't believe mm-hmm. he was keeping him in, right? right? And it was just like, did you not watch last year? <laughs> did you not learn from last year? So it was a pretty interesting decision. It ended up working out for the Red Sox, but not because that was the right decision. Also in that sixth inning, there was a, a play that you described that I think it was Posada did not advance a third on, on a ball and it turned out not to be a big deal because of the Jeter hit, but Posada did not make a play where he should have. So, you right. know, I'm, I'm trying to get into, you know, how different plays affected the, the game. This one could have been a big play, but it didn't affect the game. Yeah. And if you, if you rewatch the game, you'll see, uh, I think it was on the Fox broadcast. They, they showed the Yankees in the dugout, you know, hands on their head, like, what are you doing? You know, you should have been at third base. And again, it didn't end up mattering, but still it's those little things that can cost you a game in, in the, in the biggest moments. And so it was definitely a mistake on his part. Fortunately for the Yankees, he ended up coming around anyway, but right. those are the kind of mistakes that really can make the difference in a game. Yeah. In 2004 analytics, any bearing on on any of those games analytics? I don't think I don't think they were. Uh, I don't think it was a thing yet, right? Analytics. Yeah, the, they they didn't do much by way of advanced metrics. Certainly not like what they do today. They certainly had stats and they had lefty righty matchups and things like that. But you know, they didn't talk about spin rate or launch angle or you know anything like that. They would look and say, you know, what has this pitcher done against this hitter? You know, what is the lefty-lefty versus lefty-righty splits? They, they certainly looked at that kind of information. Um, I talk in the book about some advanced metrics in terms of bunting or run expectancy and analyzing the game from that standpoint. And I don't, I don't think those types of things were present in the game back then. There were, there were debates back then about whether bunting was a good idea. If you remember the movie Moneyball, where Brad Pitt plays Billy Bean, and there's a scene in there where where in 03, he, he's implementing the kind of the first batch of analytics, right? Trying to find a competitive advantage in the numbers. And he's telling at one point in the movie, he's telling his players, look, if the other team wants to bunt, just let them do it. Take the out at first and say, thank you. And he understood that giving away outs as a general policy was a bad, was a bad move. 
I don't know that they had tremendous amounts of data to back that up, but that soon became a thing. And this came into play, actually. I discuss it in the book in the eighth inning when the Yankees were facing a situation. Do they have Derek Jeter bunt or not? They ended up bunting and they couldn't get the run home from third with less than two outs. Was it the right move? Well, I don't know, because sometimes if you're only playing for one run, the bunt is still the preferred move. But at that point where the Yankees only playing for one run, it's a, it's a good question. Torrey decided to bunt. They didn't score. That's because A-Rod didn't get the job done. You know, he was the next guy up with, with one out. But that's, it's interesting conversation, right? We, uh, we have the analytics now, and it's just a part of the game for us. It wasn't quite the same back then. Well, I ask that because I think that if analytics had been more prominent then, this series, this game, probably maybe would have had the same conclusion, but certainly would have not played the same. Pitchers probably wouldn't have gone through, you know, they would have stopped after two times through the lineup. That's it, you know, and, and there would have been shifts. And, and so that's why I brought that up. Yeah. Now, this was the series, of course, with Kurt Schilling and the Bloody Sock. The Bloody Sock is in the Hall of Fame. Kurt Schilling is not. Right. As, as a Red Sox fan, John, and I'm not, but I think Kurt Schilling should be in the Hall of Fame. Your thoughts? Well, I think as a matter of baseball, Kurt Schilling should be in the Hall of Fame. He was an all-time great pitcher. There are probably extraneous things in his life that have kept him out of the Hall of Fame that he said and done some things that have not exactly endeared him to people, uh, certainly Hall of Fame voters. And I think that's the biggest reason why he's being kept out. He was probably a borderline Hall of Famer, not a not like a Rivera or a Pedro Martinez shoe-in, but a borderline pitcher. I, I think he probably deserves to be in, in terms of baseball merit. But I think these other things are enough that the uh, the voters are like, yeah, I don't think we're gonna. I don't think we're gonna vote this guy in. So I think that's probably the biggest reason why he's been kept out. You've seen as in the Hall of Fame. Would you in big game? Who are you taking, Schilling or Mussina? I take Schilling in a in a playoff game. Though Mussina was great. I, I mentioned him in the book, and I, I say he was he was never Pedro's caliber, but he was a pro's pro. He was an outstanding pitcher for a very long time. And a guy you could totally have confidence in. I think Schilling was one of the great big game pitchers of all time. If you look at his postseason stats, now he didn't play in this game that I, that I discussed in the book, but as a as a he played a big role in that series, of course, in Game Six. He he was a tremendous postseason pitcher uh, and a guy you absolutely wanted on the mound, you know, in a big spot. Yeah, of course, the book, and we're talking to John Van Patella. The book is the Forgotten Game. It's regarding Game Five of the 2004 American League Championship Series with the Yankees and the Red Sox. But, of course, you talk about the series itself. So for anybody that thinks that it's just the Game 5, yes, that's the central focus, but you do talk about the series in general as well. Right. Yep, for sure. I think you have to set the context for for the game and the aftermath of of Game 5. Now, we mentioned Game 3 when Rivera blows a save, but he also blew it in Game 4, but... And you go into this book about the save rule and what it means. But, but Rivera really just gave up a fly ball in this game to blow the save because the tying run scored. And, you know, saves are so different. And I can go on a tangent on, on that all, all night. But <laughs> John, he can. Believe uh, I believe it. I believe it. He has. But, you know, Rivera, he, he gave up a fly ball and, and, and they credited him with a blown save. And fair or not, that's what happened. 
Right. It, well, it, there are there are blown saves, you know, where a pitcher comes in. I mean, first of all, you, what's tough about the save rule? Now you're going to get me on a soapbox. <laughs> what 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 what's tough about the save rule is like if you have a if you have a one run lead in this and you come in in the sixth inning, you know, and, and you pitch a couple of innings and give up give up a run. That's a that's a blown save, and it's like, well. I don't know. That's a that's a tough that's a tough one. In game four, Rivera had a legitimate blown save. Right, he had a one run lead in the ninth inning. He walks the leadoff guy, Kevin Millar. Roberts pinch pinch runs, steals second. Bill Miller drives him in. Like that's a legit blown save. Rivera made the mistake of walking a batter, and then he gave up a hit. Right. So that in game five, though, he enters the game. The Red Sox were down four two after Jeter's hit. Eighth inning, Tom Gordon comes in. Ortiz hits a hits a solo shot to lead off the eighth. So now it's 4-3. Gordon walks the next guy, Kevin Millar. Dave Roberts pinch runs and ends up going to third on a single. So Rivera comes into the game with runners at first and third and nobody out, you know, with a one-run lead. And he promptly retires the next three guys. But because the first guy, Veritek, hit a fly ball just deep enough to score the run, Rivera gets credited, quote-unquote, with a blown save, which is, to me, the most unfair type of blown save. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. He, he would have had to have been perfect to get out of that or incredibly lucky, right? To get out of that inning unscathed. I, I always felt like that was an unfair application of the blown save rule on his behalf. Well, I, I think the save rule is ridiculous on its face. So uh, yeah, I guess I can get into that. But this game, <laughs> and I, everybody should read this book. And if you're a fan of baseball, this is really a compelling book. You feel the, ten- the intensity reading it. It was, it was great. But you also go into other things that which I would like to explore with you, if, if you don't mind here. Don't mind at all. In Chapter 5, you go into a deep dive on the greatest pictures of, of all time, which was a fascinating look at it. And you, you say, and I'm going to mention Rivera again, he can't be the greatest of all time, greatest picture of all time because he comes in you know, one, one inning at a time where, and you're, you're talking about the greats of the greats and you make a compelling argument why Pedro for an amount of time is the the greatest pitcher. Yeah. This is a fun topic for me. And this is the kind of stuff that baseball fans love batting around. And there's no, there's, you know, there's going to be a million opinions if you have a million people voicing them. So I do my best to just make the case and I respect other people's perspectives on it. So what I argue is that is not that Pedro was the greatest of all time in terms of the length, you know, his entire career, because he didn't pitch long enough. He didn't throw enough innings. You know, he didn't have the the longevity of a Roger Clemens or Tom Seaver or something like that. Right. So what I decided to do was say, okay, at their peak, and I broke each pitcher down to like a four-year period. Pedro really had like a seven-year peak. That was mind-boggling, but I broke it down to four-year periods. And I said, for the great pitchers who would fall into the category of the greatest of all time, Let's compare their best four-year time period. Clemens was a weird case because he didn't really have a four-year peak, you know, four years in a row. Like he had his great years scattered throughout his career. So it's hard to know, like, when was his peak, actually? He had ups and downs. But Pedro from, let's see, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002. So from 99 to 2002, I, I will I make the argument that literally nobody in the game has ever pitched better than him. And so, you know, how did I come to that conclusion? Well, you know, I saw him pitch. I didn't see, you know, I didn't see Sandy Koufax pitch. I didn't see Bob Gibson pitch. So I have to do it based on, on the numbers and all those guys in the conversation that I mentioned in the book all have ridiculously great numbers. So, you know, I'm splitting hairs a little bit, but to me, the key is uh, when you look at Pedro's numbers and the era in which he pitched the height of the steroid era, his numbers just leap off the page as being so much better than everyone else's. So 
for example, take a look at Sandy Koufax, right? Koufax is another guy who's in the in that elite conversation, right? For sure. During Koufax's peak four years, he had an ERA of 1.86, which is ridiculous, right? Pedro's ERA during his peak was 2.07. So you'd say, oh, Koufax was better. Well, yes, until you take into consideration the time in which they played. Koufax, the average NL team during 1966, for example, averaged just over four runs a game, 4.09 runs a game. For Pedro, he pitched at a time when the average AL team averaged 5.18 runs a game. So a whole run plus more per game. So when you look at Pedro's ERA in light of that, suddenly Pedro's ERA looks better. And there's a stat called ERA plus that takes these things into consideration. And and Koufax's ERA plus during his peak was an astounding 172. So 100 means you're an average pitcher. So 172 is ridiculously great. Pedro's ERA plus during his peak was 233, blows Koufax out of the water. So if you just look at the ERA plain and simple, you say, oh, Koufax was better than Pedro, but you have to take it into, into context, right? And so that's really where Pedro's numbers just are dazzling beyond compare. And I, and I make the case that when you look at all of that in the proper context, nobody's ever pitched better than Pedro. Right. You want to I miss that. that I miss that guy. He was also the most electric player I ever saw. So like he was the he was the one guy that you know I would rather go to take a restroom break when the Red Sox were batting than when <laughs> when Pedro was on the hill. You know what I mean? He was that kind of player. Yet he always had he's had his troubles with the Yankees for some reason. For sure. Well, first of all, the time he pitched for the Red Sox, the Yankees were in their dynasty era. So they were always great Yankee teams. And just like with Rivera and Boston, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that the Red Sox probably did the best of any team against Rivera. It still wasn't great, but they, they, they did better than anybody else. And part of that is familiarity, right? You see a guy enough, you're going to hit him a little bit better. Well, that's the same thing. You know, Pedro saw the Yankees a ton and they, they wore him out. They, they took a ton of pitches. They made him throw a ton of pitches. And one, the one downside about Pedro was he wasn't really a horse, right? He wasn't a 125 pitch a game guy. Of course, today he would fit in perfectly, right? He would be right. an ideal guy <laughs> to throw his 100 pitches, get out of the game after six dominant innings and let the bullpen take care of the rest. But back when he pitched, you know, aces were expected to do a little bit more than that. So they often stretched him out and, you know, he could run into some trouble late in the game. And the Yankees just did a really, really good job of kind of waiting him out, fouling off pitches, just making him throw a ton. And you know, even though he was still good against them, that more than anyone, they made him struggle for sure. He would have had a lot less, a lot fewer wins if he pitched these days, and he went six and then let the bullpens take over. Right, right, you for know. sure. You, usually, if if you think about it, and this is part of probably part of what Francona was deciding in the sixth innings, like you know, is is Mike Timlin or Alan Embry or somebody I can bring off the bench going to be a better reliever than Pedro Martinez. If Pedro was a reliever right now, it's like, nope, I still think Pedro is a better option at this point. So yeah, we, uh, we could have a long conversation about how the game has changed today and, and reasons why I'm not, a, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of some of these changes. Uh, yeah, we, we can, and we have to have another podcast about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, John, were, when, no. John, when you were, I don't know, before you started researching the book, I don't know when the last time you had, read about the game, seen the game. I'm assuming it had been a while in between. What was the one thing that as you were watching it, you remembered or, you know, like, oh, I forgot about that. You know, it's something that I, that you didn't remember. Well, I, I, I totally forgotten that 
that the Yankees had the uh, the opportunity to score in the eighth inning. I mean, I remember Jeter's hit. I remembered uh, Ortiz's homer against against Tom Gordon in the eighth. Uh, I remember the Red Sox tying it in the eighth, and I remember um, some big moments in the ninth when Tony Clark nearly won the game for the Yankees by hitting a ground rule double that just hopped the fence in right field, a really short right field porch in Fenway, uh, that if it just had stayed fair, uh, Ruben Sierra would have scored and the Yankees probably would have won that game. So that that came to mind again just recently in the ALDS when the Tampa Bay Rays hit a ball into the right field bullpen for a ground rule double that would have scored, had it stayed in the park, would have scored probably the winning run against the Red Sox this year. So, But for me, I think that the moment that really I had forgotten about was Jeter had, we talked about earlier, Jeter had sacrificed, bunted the runner to third in the eighth inning. That the fact that the Yankees could not get him in was a huge moment in that game. And it was Alex Rodriguez who struck out against Mike Timlin, made a nice, nice pitch to get him swinging. And, you know, that was one of those moments where A-Rod, you know, newly acquired A-Rod had a chance to be the Yankee hero. Right. And he failed in that moment, which kind of was a, I guess, a sign of things to come. Right. Because he did not have a great other than 2009. He did not have a great postseason career with the Yankees. And I think Yankee fans always resented that about him. Great regular season player, obviously, ridiculous numbers. But in the clutch, right, Derek Jeter was the guy they wanted up, not Alex Rodriguez. And so that was probably the first big moment where A-Rod had a chance to win it and didn't and kind of sent him down this path. And talking about A-Rod and Jeter, and you go into this early in the book, about how the Yankees acquired A-Rod and how he was, and I have this argument with a friend of mine all the time, all the time, how he was and should have been the shortstop of the Yankees having Jeter to move to third, but because the he was Jeter and he was his team, he was not going to move off a uh, shortstop. Uh, could you explain the logic? Was, as a fan, as a, as a baseball fan, I guess the logic would be move Jeter to third. I mean, a-Rod was obviously the superior shortstop. Your thoughts? He was. He, he was a better, much better hitter, obviously. I mean, A-Rod was an all-time, all-time great hitter, regardless of position, right? His, not, his career numbers are mind-boggling. But he was also a much better fielder than Jeter. Now, they didn't have the stat wins above replacement, you know, a war, as they call it, back then. And so people didn't think about this. You could just go bomb based on, you know, fielding percentage and what you could see. But with comparing Jeter to A-Rod, it, it was really interesting. In 2004, there's the stat war, wins above replacement. There's an offensive component to it and a defensive component. And the defensive component takes into account your ability to field balls that you get to, but also your range, right? So like Cal Ripken Jr. was a had a terrific glove, but he couldn't move at short by the end of his time as a shortstop. So that's when they they moved him, right? And so... It was like, he can't get to anything. He fields everything that he can get to, but he just doesn't get to much. And that's why shortstops with greater range probably had more errors, but they could also run down a a lot more balls. Well, Jeter's range was really his issue. He had a good glove and a good arm, but his range was the issue. And so, so in 2004, Jeter had a defensive war of negative 0.3, which means that he was below average at shortstop. A-Rod was plus... 1.4. 1.4. So he was a, he was like virtually two wins better than A-Rod as a defense, just purely on his defense alone. When A-Rod got traded to the Yankees, right? The question was going to be, what are you going to do? Cause they play the same position. 
right? Jeter and A-Rod. The smart move would have been to put A-Rod at short, Jeter at third. It would have helped Jeter's range because he didn't have to go to his right because you have the third base line. So he only has to cover a certain smaller area, let the rangier A-Rod play short. It's a win-win offensively, defensively. It helps the whole team. But Jeter, being Derek Jeter, he was the captain of the team and short was his position and he did not want to move off short, period, full stop, end of discussion. And so the Yankees just weren't going to do it. They were, And A-Rod was perfectly willing to play third. He's like, whatever it takes to, to make this deal work out, I'll, take, I'll play third. So I know a lot of Yankee fans give A-Rod a ton of grief, and they favor Jeter over A-Rod for a lot of reasons. But A-Rod was a pretty stand-up guy and was willing to do whatever it took to get himself – into a position to help the team. So I think he is kind of unsung in that regard. You know, he sacrificed a lot to play third base for them. I, I, I agree with you. I, I definitely agree with you. And I lost my train of thought. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, you know, he sacrificed, but he also signed that huge contract with Texas. And sure. then luckily, you know, the demand for him was, you know, he almost went to the Red Sox. He yep. was willing to take less money. The union stepped in, and you talk about this in the book, and the union stepped in and said, no, 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 you, that can't happen. So, you know, and the Yankees trade for him, and, of course, everyone's like, oh, the Yankees get whatever they want. But, I mean, A-Rod, he, he didn't have to sign that huge deal to go to, you know, the, you want to say. The, the Rangers. You know, the Rangers, but I'm just, I was going to say, you know, like some kind of like the, the desert, which is the Rangers at the time, you know, the right, right, barren. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, definitely moving to the Yankees was a, was a big step up for him. Right. So in, even in terms of uh, coverage, right. Uh, you know, the, the Yankees are much more popular and more renowned team than the Rangers, obviously, or Seattle where he was before that. But in terms of personal glamour, right? Shortstop for the Yankees is a more glamorous position than third base for the Yankees. And, and A-Rod could have insisted, Hey, I'll, I'll take the trade there, but only if I play short. And, uh, and he didn't do that. And so, yeah, I mean, when I say he sacrificed, it wasn't like he, he lost millions, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or anything like that. He still got to play in the greatest rivalry and he got to play, you know, prominent role, but he still gave up something. Right. He still, and he was willing to give up something, as you mentioned, to go to the Red Sox too. Like he, he was willing to give up stuff in order to get mm-hmm. himself into that position to play in this rivalry. Right. So I give him credit for that. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and we know you're, you're Red Sox. And let's bring it back to the Red Sox. <laughs> go, this game goes 14 innings. And the guy who won it the night before, well, I shouldn't say the night before, the, the same day. Yep. Wins it Early in the morning. this night yeah, in 14 innings. Could you explain yeah. the, the greatest, you know, the great comeback and win for the Red Sox? Well, so in, in, oh, four, in, the, in game four, of course, that game took a long time and, and it, uh, it ended in the wee hours of, of the morning of game five. And so David Ortiz was the guy who, who hit the home run in extra innings in game four to win it. And then he ends up winning it in the 14th inning for the Red Sox on a single to score Johnny Damon. So he was the first guy, I think he's the only guy still to this day, who has driven in two game-winning RBI in the postseason on the same day, right? Because <laughs> technically it was, you know, both happened on the same exact day. But, you know, the Red Sox were able to come back in that eighth inning and tie the score. Yankees almost win in the ninth. They go to 13 innings. And in the 13th, the Yankees almost won it because Tim Wakefield had come into the game and he just his knuckleball was going crazy and it was a miracle that he didn't 
let up any runs because Jason Veritek behind the plate was having an impossible time catching the thing. And so I remember that as a fan that even rewatching it, you know, I know what's coming, but it's a white knuckle ride the entire inning. And somehow, some way they get out of that without giving up a run. Well, they go to the 14th and Ortiz is able to drive in, you know, the winning run on a single Damon races home from second and, you know, the, the place is bedlam, right? But David Ortiz, when he came to the Red Sox, he wasn't, he was just a bench player, you know, a guy with some promise some power and some promise, but he'd never really done anything in the game. And he joins the Red Sox and gets in these postseason moments. And he became just a legendary figure, kind of different from A-Rod in the sense that, you know, A-Rod was probably a better player, you know, than, than David Ortiz, but David Ortiz came through in so many big time clutch moments, uh, in 07. And then in 2013, he had one of the great world series of all time, you know, going up against the Cardinals. So I think he really, in this series became, you know, all capital letters, David Ortiz. Mm. And so it was really fun to, to go back and watch him, you know, in the, in kind of the early moments of his career, do these amazing things. Yeah. And, and at this time, at the time, I think this was the longest postseason game played at at the time now, I think we you know this passed obviously, and as time goes by. But at, at the time, that was the longest postseason game ever played. Yeah, five hours and forty nine minutes, just an eternal game. And again, as you're watching it, it's just you know it's it's taking years off my life as a fan watching <laughs> this game, right? And you know this is this is coming. Even when they won, you still weren't even sure the Red Sox were going to win the series, right? Because you still have to go back yeah, to New York right. and, and win two more. So exactly, it, it was just just a grueling thrilling roller coaster of a ride as a fan well you have a a great quote and of course i didn't write down who said it i just wrote down the quote but with the fans there were so many highs and lows that francona needed to go to the bullpen for thirty-five thousand new fans that's (laughs) a great line yeah yeah i think that that might have been bill simmons said that if off the top of my head i'm not sure i got that right but um yeah it, it was we just slumped on the couch. One of the other experiences, by the way, that I don't know if you guys are basketball fans that I can kind of liken it to this is I'm a, I'm a Syracuse grad, but I work at the University of Connecticut. And in 2009, Syracuse and UConn played a college, a Big East basketball tournament game in Madison Square Garden that lasted six overtimes. And it was wow. it was the same kind of feeling, right? It was just the game just kept going on and on and on. And every play was a life or death moment. And I was watching it with one of my students who was a, a Yukon fan. And by the end of it, we were both just like completely spent, right? Just completely spent. And uh, Syracuse had a chance to win that game at the very end of regulation. One of the players hits a, a three pointer at the buzzer that would have won it. And the place went crazy. And then they reviewed it. And it was like, Nope, the ball was just on his fingertips. We had no idea we were going to be in for another hour and a half of basketball, right? Six more, six overtimes later. And so after the game, I asked him, I said, Ben, now that you know how it turned out, would you rather have just lost on the, <laughs> on the, the three pointer at the, at the buzzer at the end of regulation? Right. And it's kind of the same way Would this game have been better. Had the Red Sox somehow just wanted in the ninth inning. I don't know. Like I think part of what makes it great is how long it was and just how drawn out it was. And how intense each extra inning. And you look in the bullpen, like we have nobody left to pitch. You know, Tim Wakefield is going to have to throw 20 innings if it goes that far. You know, Esteban Loiza is going to have to just pitch until literally his arm falls off, you know, because we have nobody left, you know, to pitch. At that point, Schilling and, oh, I'm blanking on who the Yankee starter was in game six, but they had they had been 
I think John Lieber, I think, but they had been sent to New York, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in light of potential game six. So they, they weren't even available. Like they weren't even with the team right. to help out in, in game five. So it was like, it was just an incredible baseball experience. And I think way more so being a fan of one of those two teams. John, we're not going to hold you much longer, but I but I want to ask you, I want to get behind the scenes a little with this book because you come up with the idea to do a book on a game. It's obviously you you have it published. It's a great book. But what what do you do first? I mean, did you did you come up with the idea and pitch it to various companies or did you publishers, I should say, did you did you write some of it? And then I, I mean, what's the process with this? And did you find that a lot of publishers were excited about it or did was it difficult to shop it? Well, I think anytime you try to publish a book, it's a challenge, right? There's a million books out there. And, you know, as a, as a really a, a little known author, you know, I'm not Tom Verducci. I'm not Joe Posnoski. Like, you know, like I'm not, I'm not one of these well-known people. And, you know, Stephen King can write a book about what he had for supper and somebody's going to buy that, right? Because it's Stephen King. I'm not Stephen King. I, I'm not, you know, any of these guys. So, so the book itself had to tell a pretty compelling story. The process was basically, I have a, an agent named Amanda Ledeke, who I met at a writer's conference a few years ago. I ended up pitching the idea to her and her, her company, and they, they, they decided to take it on, right? They said, you know what, we'll represent you. And so she went through the process of contacting various publishers. I wrote a, a decent amount of the book, and but I, in order to pitch it to a publisher, you have to write a certain amount. They want several chapters of it. They want to see, you know, have a sense of what the story is going to look like and how you write. And so I had the first, I don't know, three or four chapters done. And so I sent it to Permuted Press and they loved it. They, they thought it was a really cool story. And so they, they agreed to take it on. And so, you know, we signed the book contract and then from there I had to finish it. And then I had to, you know, do all the editing and that's a long process. Mm-hmm. And I, I am very grateful to people who are copy editors because I grew up in a world, just as a small example, I grew up in a world where you guys ever take typing in high school, you know, oh, I took typing. Oh, yeah. And so I have always, since then, I've always put like two spaces after a period, mm-hmm. right? Well, yes. little did I know that that's not how it's done these days, right? So every one of my sentences had two spaces after a period. Well, they corrected like 8 million of those, right? In, in my, in my manuscript. So Things like that would have been really arduous for me to do. You know, some there's a pro who who does that stuff and really helps you along in the process. So I had people read it, give me feedback. I had a bunch of Red Sox and Yankee fans read the book for me and give me feedback. And I was grateful, especially to the Yankee fans who read it and said, you know what, this is a really good, fair treatment of a team you hate, <laughs> you know? And so when I got that, I was like, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm doing this justice. And, you know, I was just grateful that they, that they were willing to take a chance and, and publish it. It's, it's hard to get published. You know, a lot of people want to be writers and it's not an easy thing. And I don't think I'll ever sell enough books or be a good enough author so that this becomes my full-time job. That'd be great, but that's probably not going to happen. So it will forever, I think, just be a really fun hobby for me. So I want to keep writing and, and uh, produce new, new work that people enjoy. So it means a lot to me that you guys enjoyed the book. I wrote it because I wanted to write because I enjoyed it, but I wrote it so that people like you would read it and, and find it fascinating and interesting and, and enjoy it. That's so I'm grateful. We certainly did. Absolutely. And, and uh, before we let you go, you make the argument that because of game five, 
it started the Red Sox on a trajectory of where they are today. Tell us about that. Well, before 2004, the Red Sox always came up short, right? And But they they'd had a lot of great teams in the process, right? The 75 team, the 78 team that lost to the Yankees on the Bucky Dent homer. The Bucky bleeping Dent homer, I should say. (laughs) And, uh, you know, in in 86, right, they had a three games to two lead over the Mets. They blew game six. And a lot of people forget they blew game seven, too. They were up three nothing in that game, right? So they had two chances to put the Mets away. Couldn't do it. In in 95, they went to the playoffs. Couldn't get it done. In in 99, they lost to the Yankees. Um, In the early 90s, they lost to the A's, right? It It was like they just could never get over the hump. But they'd had some great teams in the process. 03, that team was an awesome team. Couldn't get it done. I think for a lot of these great franchises, I'm a little surprised this didn't happen with the Braves during the Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin era. But you know, they had some great teams and they finally got over the hump. And they and I thought they would win more once they finally broke through. But the Red Sox finally broke through, right? And once they did, you know, the quote unquote curse of the Bambino, you know, was over. And it was suddenly like a giant weight was lifted off the organization's shoulders. And, you know, obviously players that played in 2004 were not around when Babe Ruth got traded. They weren't around in, you know, in 1946 when Johnny Pesky held the ball. They weren't around when the, when the Cardinals beat the Red Sox in, you know, in uh, 67 or when the big red machine beat them in 75, they weren't around for that, but there is still something about, I, I don't like the word curse. Cause I don't, I don't really believe in that, but I, but there was, there was a weight on the organization that the players could even feel, right? Because they're feeling the weight of expectation of just generations of fans. You know, is this going to be the team that gets it done? And when they finally broke through, I think it, 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 it freed them up as an organization, right? And so, plus they, they added great players. You know, they, they had some great teams in there. So I don't want to say it, that caused their subsequent success. But I would say, I think it took a giant, this is the way I phrase it, giant weight off the organization's shoulders and it just gave them freedom to kind of exhale. And just now, now we're just like everybody else. We're just competing like everybody else. We're not the Red Sox with this, with the ghosts of the past, you know, hanging all over us. We're 21 years into the the, the 2000s and the Red Sox has the most world series wins with four. (laughs) Yeah, I know that's, it's, it's hard to believe it's, it's really crazy because my kids, my two sons uh, were born in 95 and 97. My two daughters were born in 99 and 01. And all they've ever known is Red Sox and Patriots, you know, greatness. And it's like, <laughs> you know, no idea, you know, what it's been like to be a fan of these franchises, you know, during some really lean and difficult years. And uh, so, you know, they have these expectations. Oh, why aren't the Patriots great? This shit? like, look, they were awesome for 20 years. You can't, you can't always from forever be, you know, the greatest team in the league, you know, and the Red Sox, it's, it's amazing that they can actually win. Like they have and people now just take it for granted. Like this is the way it's supposed to be. It's like, no, uh, it's just, it's just, it's really, it's been a fun couple of decades to be a new England sports fan, a Red Sox fan in particular. We, uh, we agree with you. We thank you for joining the show. Everybody, the forgotten game besides bookstores, your website, they can uh, pick this up if they want a, a copy or an autograph copy. Yeah, so certainly it's on Amazon, right? And that's a right. great place to buy it. I do have a website called uh, johnvampatella.com. And on there you can shop and you can see the other books that I have and some even some projects that I'm working on for the future. If you want an autograph copy, and this is where it's weird, right? As an author, like somebody might want 
a signed copy. I, I guess that's a thing, right? So some people want that. Uh, you can't get a signed copy on Amazon. You have to get it through my through my website for that. And I'd be happy to send one out to anybody. But those are the two best avenues to get a book. Well, that's terrific. Thank you very much, John, for joining us. This has been really fun. Great book. Enjoy talking to you. Thank you very much. Guys, thanks. Thank I, you, really pre- I really appreciate it. Hope we can do it again. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. And we want to thank John Vampatella for a great interview, great book. If you're a best Boston Red Sox fan, you really enjoyed it. If you're a Yankee fan, probably not as much. But <laughs> You know what, Jeff? I had forgotten about that game. Oh, yeah. So I'm glad someone wrote a book about it. It's the forgotten game. I could, yeah, I got to tell you, there is a, he settles an argument in there with me and a friend of mine about the Derek Jeter A Rod issue. Well, he, he definitely, he definitely sides with you. That is for sure. Well, which is, but the I think side. most. Yeah, of course. <laughs> if, but you know what? If anybody listens to that and it's like, oh, you know, well, they're not that they would be like, oh, you know, the Yankees, this, that. We had it was a we had series. A, Come on, of course, and we had Tony Lazari. Uh, we, well, we didn't have Tony Lazari, but we had Lawrence Baldessaro. Lawrence Baldessaro on episode one eleven, and we were gushing about that great Yankee, right? Right, Tony Lazari. So I think when you're around long enough, things are obviously going to happen. Yeah. You know, when the Yankees have been around forever, and that's something that they were down. You know, they were up three games to none and they lost. So they have so many World Series that, you know what, what's one? What's one that they don't get? Yeah. <laughs> and who do we have on next? We have none other than Vic Clevenger. Enjoy. Baseball and barbecue listeners, you are in for a treat. You can't even imagine that our guest is like the Renaissance man of barbecue. That's all I'm going to say. I, I have a feeling that by the time we're done, you will be Googling this guy many times over because I, just from the boots that he wears on one of his websites, you, you will be amazed. Anyway, let's get right to it. He's a speaker. He's a freelance writer. He's a comedian. He's a pit master. He's actually talking to us on the road. He stopped. He pulled over. He's traveling back from the World Food Championships in Texas to go home. And he stopped, pulled over. He knew how important an appearance on baseball and barbecue is. And so we are very pleased to welcome Vic Clevenger, known as the cooking comedian, to baseball and barbecue. Welcome, Vic. Hey, man, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If I had that introduction, man, I was so impressed. I couldn't wait to hear myself. <laughs> you know how to flower it up, man. <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's all true. So, Vic, you're, you're sitting there, and, of course, this is a podcast, so we'll, we'll paint the word picture, as uh, some announcers would say. And you're sitting, it looks like you're in a minivan, and you and apparently you're traveling uh, back from the World Food Championship. So now I, I hand it over to you. What, where are you coming from and what are you in? <laughs> so I am in a 
<laughs> I would like to tell you what my girlfriend calls it, but I'm not going to because it might get me arrested. But I'm in a white paneled cargo van. I'll let you all draw the pictures. All that. <laughs> just, so, just you're not. You don't have candy in the van. Just please. <laughs> well, actually, my girlfriend's name's Candace, and we call her Candy all the time. So <laughs> we was in we was in Savannah, and we travel with her daughter, and uh, we found a shirt that says. I'm no idiot. Show me the candy before I get in your, or show me the candy first before I get in your van. And her sisters over, they live in South Africa. Her sisters were like, you need to get that, put it on your daughter and then do a video of show me the candy. And then she opens up the door and then I bring her, I have her daughter in the back seat that's wearing that shirt and kind of stuff. So, so that's a little running joke. That's kind of van I'm driving in. It has my logo all over the side of it. So uh, you can't miss it. I just pulled off of Interstate 10, sitting at a Love's just outside of Panama City and uh, Panama City, Florida, heading back to um, Orlando. The cool thing about doing what I do, full-time traveling, cooking, writing, not that uh, I don't need more sponsors if there's anybody out there listening, but I get to travel the country, man, and hang out with foodies, uh, pull off on the side of the road at a truck stop, talk to y'all travel with my girlfriend and my dog and we just have a blast so right now i'm sitting at a loves uh looking at all the uh trucks and cars drive by in front of me where are you where are you coming from you coming from the world oh yeah so we're coming from dallas texas partnered with extended stay america which is a hotel chain uh they put us up in Louisville, texas which is outside dallas so he's there to compete in the world food championship didn't quite do as well as i'd wanted to but i'm still top 20 in the world, in desserts of all things, not even on a grill, in desserts. And uh, so we just kind of did some foodie things there, touristy things, and heading back to Florida, uh, where we call home. Nice. So uh, so how did you be- begin to be a, a pit master? I began uh, just my love of cooking. Uh, my mom cooked growing up. Me and my brother both cooked. Actually, my brother's a trained chef. And I like, well, because the only barbecue we did was burgers growing up. And then he started smoking some meat. And then I thought, well, I can do that. So I started doing a grill because it's a manly thing. You got to have a grill. And then I started smoking and just got more and more into it. And now I like cook on anything. Give me a chain link fence, turn sideways, and I'll <laughs> try to put some charcoal under it and grill a steak or something. But I got my own line of grills now, uh, the Chimney Cartel Cookers, so they could travel easy. And uh, so I, I just love it. Just got started doing that and got better at it and, and uh, hung out with all the right people, learn it. Uh, just like with anything, uh, when it's your passion, you want to learn it all and do it all. And that's, that's what it's grown to me to be is, is a passion for me. You know, Vic, it's funny. Nobody ever comes on and we ask how they got their start. Nobody says, well, when I was a kid, I used to use my sister's easy bake oven and, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Back when I was a kid, I not, I did a joke one time. Uh, I was at a world food. It's my first introduction to world food championships. I'm like, look, I'll come do some comedy for you all. I just want to come and hang out and, and scope it all in. Well, Mike McLeod gave me a little a little time slot to do it kind of off the big stage and one of the little side things. And I did a whole comedy bit on baking a cake in an easy bake oven. So I went all over, found an easy bake oven, did all this mixture, put it in the easy bake oven, 
And as it was coming through, I'd tell some comedy bits and stuff. And then I pulled out this full size cake that I had a friend of mine make. And so it was, it was, a, it was funny. And I met a lot of, a lot of people there. So, so I'm not above cooking on an easy bake if I need to. Well, you, you mentioned this, the uh, chimney cartel line of, of, of cookers you have. Yep. Tell us about it. I'm on the website right now, chimneycartel.com. And it looks, I tell you why, it looks a little different than what we're used to. It is. So uh, my website needs to be redone. So don't judge a book by its cover. The, um, but the grill, it's a three foot tall, 11, uh, 11 inch square um, grill. And so there's a number of things you can do with it. I've smoked ribs on it. Uh, put my firebox all the way to the bottom of it. Put some ribs in there and hung them just like you would a barrel. Uh, but mainly the it's based on the premise of cooking with a starter chimney. So if you've done a lot of charcoal grill, you have your starter chimney from Weber or Oklahoma Joe or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it's that premise. So when I first started cooking, I started the chimney cartel. I just did it as a joke. I wanted I was emceeing an event, but I wanted to cook a steak contest. And so I was given the bright idea. Once you take a grill grate, put it on a chimney and uh, cook your steak that way. Well, I'm like, all right. So that's what I did. Come out 13th out of about 40 people. And I'm like, all right, so this is fun. And people were laughing at me. And I'm like, I'm a comedian. So I'm used to people laughing at me for doing crazy things. But then a friend of mine, they ended up doing something like that in an ancillary. And they said, in the spirit of Vic Clevenger. And so I just hashtagged at the chimney cartel. And I'm like, a light bulb went off. It's like a cartoon character where that light bulb goes off the top of your head. It's like, oh, you got something here. So a few years ago, me and my buddy Craig Carter got to talking about putting together our own line of grills for the chimney cartel. So we designed this one. It's portable. It's, it's like I said, it's three feet tall, but it's only 11 inches square. So it's portable. You can do a lot of things, very versatile, uh, but it's great if you're going tailgating, you're out on your boat, you're camping, or if you just want something quick and easy in the backyard, it only takes about 20 briquettes and you can grill a couple of good steaks and a chicken wing. And, and you compete with this? I do. Wow. I do pretty well, actually. That's great. So with it. So, <laughs> and it, it, it's uh, Brad Barrett from Grill Greats, when we first brought him out, his words were, what is old has become new again. Because a lot of people, when you grill, you think of grilling um, at your campsite or whatever. But now people are competing. They're using PKs and Rectex and, and green eggs and all these other grills where you shut the lid on it and it almost, and it comes, becomes a, like an oven, a confection oven where it circulates the heat. And I'm not trying to knock any of these, but that's really what it is. You have your grill, but you have that heat circulating. Um, so I was like, let's just grill. Let's just put it as an open fire, put it on a grate and then manage your heat. And I do. Okay. How much are they? It, Cause I was true just grilling. Vic, so, I was just looking for the price. I didn't see. How much, are, yeah, how much the, do they um, go for? Like I said, they're, they're, the website's still in. Um, I just had to switch over to a new server. So they're doing, uh, we're doing, redoing the entire thing. So it's not up. But a, a regular steel grill is going to be about $400. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you wanted it powder coated, you're looking at $450 plus shipping and all that. Okay. So I mean, that comes to Yeah. So the holidays are here. Charcoal. Excuse me? No, no. no you, I, I should never step on the guests. No, no, no. Speaking, go so. ahead. I mean, I was just going to say it. Yeah, well, no, I was just going to say the uh, uh, the holidays are coming. So uh, if, if it looks like a nice gift, they they I saw they come in all different colors, too. They do. 
we had we, we was running the special for October, the pink one, uh, for breast cancer awareness. You can still get that one. You can get a red one. And if Christmas is coming up, you can get a red one or a green one. We're not going to discriminate. And, uh, you know, whichever one your favorite Christmas color is, uh, you can just get a plain one. Uh, a lot of guys are digging just the plain steel ones because as the heat builds up in the steel, it almost gives it that gun color. You know, when you get a stainless steel gun, it gets all heat and it turns that purple and blue shade. These will also turn that. Um, they get a nice patina look. Brent Galloway took his, and after he let it weather and cooked on it and everything, he put a clear coat on it because he liked that patina look and just put a clear coat on it and just left it that way and loves it. So a lot of guys are digging the uh, digging that regular plain color, but we can get you in any color. We just did a thing for Coors Light uh, for one of uh, the teams. Uh, they wanted their uh, they wanted their team colors in it. I think it was like a, a forest green or something. So we can do just about any color. Well, that, that it's certainly a, a unique uh, grill. I, I haven't seen anything like it before. So, you know, it's great to compete in it and, and do well in it. Uh, in the picture, though, I see that it, it's in front of uh, Operation Barbecue Relief. So I'm wondering if you have any affiliation with them. We're all pals. I've done some MC work for them. I was going to do some things for them when they were in Orlando, but I was out of town. So I volunteer for them, just like anybody else. Operation Barbecue Relief mm-hmm. is a great organization. For those listeners uh, who are not familiar with it, they go into a disaster area and and feed the first responders and the and people that are hungry, that are displaced from a hurricane, a flood, uh, the big Houston floods a few years ago. Um, Operation Barbecue Relief was one of the main groups there. Fox News, CNN, um, all went over to interview them, so it was a big deal. And they and they fed. I think they. I think the numbers now are well over seven million people since they started in two thousand and eleven. And they just started because Stan Hayes and a couple of his buddies, uh, when the tornadoes went through Joplin, said, "Hey, let's just take our smokers down here and just feed people." And so that's how it all began. And then it's just built up since then. It's is now its own organization. It was one of the top ten volunteer type groups or nonprofit groups of two thousand and. 18 17 something like that from cnn so you know it, it's a it's a it's one of those non-profit organizations that i'm proud to put my name behind and and i don't do that with a lot that the national barbecue and grilling association is another uh but operation barbecue relief just goes in and helps people regardless of the situation they partner with the red cross they'll partner with the salvation army whatever needs to be done they'll go in they've got the food cost at about a dollar a person uh, with all the donations and things. So if you want to go and support National uh, Operation Barbecue Relief, you can go find it at Operation Barbecue Relief, I think, .org or OBR.org. Uh, and uh, they're a 501c3, so you get a tax break uh, if you're into that. So it's a great organization to donate to. Uh, they also have a volunteer page uh, where you can put your name on a list to be a volunteer. So if something happens uh, in your general area and they need a call for volunteers, They'll send you an email, say, hey, we need a volunteer. And you can say yes or no. And um, if you go down, they'll put you to work. And it's you're not going to It's not one of those organizations where you just go down and say, hey, I volunteered. Uh, they're going to put you to work. And right. you're going to be <laughs> blessed by doing that. So it's yes. a great organization to be a part of. Yeah, Len and I are big supporters of Operation Barbecue. We've oh, had good. Because so you all know all about it then. Yeah, we've had somebody on for, uh, representing them before on, on the show. Perfect. So they're big, big supporters, yeah. yes. Yeah, we had David Marks on. Oh, yeah, I know, David. We were just yeah. talking to him just the other day. Yeah. 
And actually, when Jeff and I first started this podcast, we did a road trip to Atlantic City. There was I can't remember what it was called, but um, it was a barbecue event and they were there as well. So and it's fantastic. So, yeah, yeah no, it's fantastic. Yeah, they're, they're a great organization to be a part of. Yeah. One of the things I saw is that you now I don't know you you work for B&B Charcoal or you represent B&B Charcoal or. No, I'm an I'm an ambassador for them, just right. like uh, Mark Lambert and or um, Boar's Not Out and, mm-hmm. and some of the other guys. We just um, they have chosen us to be influencers uh, to represent their brand for 2021. Yeah, because I I've got to tell you, I one of my one of my pet peeves recently is uh, and it's hard to have some pet peeves with barbecue, but but we can have them. <laughs> yeah, but is uh, we're not short on them. I can tell you that <laughs> the charcoal. I find a brand of charcoal. I, I, perfect example. When I when I first started smoking, and and I haven't been using a smoker for that long. I think I don't know about. It's a little over four years ago that I really started getting into smoking. But I had Stubbs charcoal, and I loved oh, yeah. Stubbs charcoal. And then all of a sudden, Stubbs charcoal went goodbye. They, we didn't yeah. have that, right? So, okay. And then and then I was also using. Was it Red Oak or something? I forget the the kind. But it was, uh, yeah, it was Royal Oak. Royal Oak, right? Yep. Of course, Royal Oak. But that, of course, is not charcoal. It's, you know, it's hardwoods. A little different. But then I discovered Weber, right? Weber charcoal. Great charcoal. And then all of a sudden, I can't find that anymore. So I can't. What is going on? I know this Kingsford. You, you can find right? Kingsford know, yeah. everywhere. <laughs> right. Yeah, You can find Kingsford laying on the side of the road. Yeah. It's everywhere. Well, and and no insult to Kingsford, but no, no. I I like these other brands. Mm-hmm. And so now tell me about B&B Charcoal and convince me that that's the brand that I should buy. I'll tell you why I like B&B. I started using B&B Charcoal before I was one of their influencers. So uh, I'll tell you the reason why I started using it. I liked it because it did burn cleaner. It, to me, it lasted longer. The briquettes are a little larger than a normal briquette, a little larger than the Kingsford, I should say. And I guess a bit larger than Royal Oak, because Royal Oak and Kingsford are about the same size. So it's a little lar- larger. So it burned longer, so I didn't need to use as much charcoal. Uh, a bag lasted a little longer because it would burn longer, so I can cook more. So I like that. Uh, what I also like is I got more and more involved with the company, is they use everything. To me, B&B Charcoal was a one-stop shop because I was doing a lot of smoking, using a lot of woods. Rarely did I use charcoal in my smoker. I would start it with a starter with some with some kindling that I that I would hatch it off of the B&B wood. What I found out from from working with the company is that they start off with the wood, come down to the chunks, on down to the chips. And then on down, but they'll, they'll use the wood. And so what's left over from that wood, when they, when they turn it into charcoal, they, when they turn it into lump charcoal is the leftovers that they press it into regular briquettes. What is there left over from that? They press down into other stuff, but they use every bit of a tree. So they'll, they'll press it in even to the sawdust left to turn into the pellets. So I like that they didn't waste a commodity. So when you see people talk about, and I'm not a huge environmentalist or anything like that, but when you see somebody who's who's using a resource 
to the very the very most that they can use it, to me, that's somebody I want to get behind. And I don't know any of the other charcoal companies that do that. They, they, they don't do that. But my biggest thing when I first started using them is they just burn longer, they burn cleaner, and I didn't have that smell uh, that you get with a lot of other um, a lot of other charcoals. Where can I get B&B other than they'll send me a bag to try? I'll, I'll go to the store and buy it, but yeah. um, where can Ace I hardware, get it? Ace Hardware, Ace hardware it. carries it. It's getting hard. It's hard to find. Uh, it's just now coming back after COVID. COVID wreaked havoc on the charcoal industry, not just B&B, who's a small, well, it was a small family business, but on everybody. There was a time when I'd go into the store, I couldn't find B&B. I couldn't find Cowboy. I couldn't find Royal Oak, Kingsford, none of it. Because when COVID hit, all the restaurants shut down. People were cooking at home. More people became interested in grilling and cooking outside. So they were just snatching up all the charcoal. Uh, they didn't care what they used. There's a bag of charcoal sitting there. So let me grab it. I'm going to use it. So uh, they, they used everything. But right now, it's just now starting to come back in Academy Sports, uh, if you're near a Bucky's, you can get it there. That's a Texas, I would say truck stop, but they just sell gasoline. It's a big gas station. Uh, they sell to Bucky's, Academy Sports. Ace Hardware is the the most prominent place. Uh, they're everywhere. You can find an Ace Hardware. They'll find they'll have a B and B charcoal. So I mean, that's that would be my my first bet. Them and Ace and Academy Sports. I want to read something to you. May I read this? I, please. Okay. Watch out. Vic is always assembling new material. Just when you think he's not listening, you're the next line in the show. It's amazing how in just a short time, he can get to know your group and customize a belly rolling show. What an awesome talent. I highly recommend Vic and his unique brand of comic relief at your next meeting. And that was said by your mom. No, that was actually. Who not pay to write that? That was actually said by Mark Lambert yeah. from Sweet Swine of Mine Distributing. And actually, it Sweet Swine of Mine is a rub that's actually sold in, I believe, in everywhere or Lowe's. Or, it's all over the place. Yeah, it's, it's in Lowe's, it's, yeah. uh, Walmart, uh, Bachelor Shop, everywhere. Yeah, huge compliment. Tell us. What exactly he's referring to? <laughs> so it was at the National Barbecue and Grilling Association's National Conference. And I uh, was going to be the MC that night and do some comedy for him. But the day before, i just been hanging out with him. Nobody really knew who I was. I was just a another face, another guy who had his card drawn to cook with the, the cook at the barbecue bash with the professionals, you know, and. And so I just sat around, was just talking to people, but I was slowly just writing things down that I picked up at the conference. Because if you're going to a conference like that, if you're an MC or a comedian or a speaker, you want to make it personal. So I went through my regular routine. You know, I told my regular, you know, I'm from Kentucky jokes. You know, our, our family tree just goes in a circle, that kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> that is good. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was doing all that. And then I said, all right, so let me, let me close it out. It's about, but I, I was only scheduled to go 20 minutes. They let me go for 45. They said, keep going, keep going. So I, I went ahead and kept going. Uh, but then I, I listed off like 10 or 12 things that I noticed. 
And I, apparently Mark was on that list, and I, I ragged him a little bit. Brooke Orson was on there. Eric Hodson from Boar's Night Out. Uh, these are all great guests if you haven't had them already on your show, people to talk to. Uh, Mike Mills was on that list. So, I mean, just, just, it was just a great, great time. And then I went on after the show to actually emcee the, the auction I did because the National Barbecue and Grilling Association, like I said earlier, is a nonprofit organization. And part of them raising their money is their auctions. So we was auctioning off a bunch of stuff and I was ragging people, drawing money out. And at that time, it was the most money they'd raised at one of their auctions in their history. So it, it, we just had a big time. It was a lot of fun. And uh, Mama Shed from the the Shed Blues and uh, Barbecue and Blues Joint, she called me that Monday and she says, "Put the National Barbecue Grilling Association on your schedule for the rest of your life." She goes, <laughs> "You're gonna be you're gonna be there." So, so I've been there ever since doing something uh, with them, whether it's MC or teaching a class or, or whatever. So it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So Lambert, Lambert's a good friend. And if, if you want to, if you want to learn cooking, bring me in and I'll teach you some cooking. Uh, but if you can't do that, uh, check out Mark Lambert and his YouTube page uh, or go to, uh, you get a chance to meet him at an event, at a barbecue competition, stop in, talk to him, say, hey, Vic told us just to watch you and we'll learn how to cook great barbecue because he's he's a six-time world champion and he's won it everywhere. He's won Memphis in May. He's won the American Royal. He's won the uh, San Antonio or the Houston Livestock. He's won San Antonio Livestock. He's he's done it all, and he to me he's a, a well-rounded barbecue uh, guy and he's somebody that you can learn from. So bring me in, but if you can't, then go see him. Okay, let me, you know you did mention that you uh, teach classes. And I did read that on one of your web pages. So, uh, are you this funny when you're teaching a class? I I try. Listen, <laughs> I I hated sitting in class when the professor or the teacher just droned on. And uh, and I was a professor of speech, and you can't get more boring in teaching us in in being a speech professor. So whenever I got drawn to be a speech professor. I'm like, my classes are going to be a hoot. I'm not going to sit up there and drone on about how to decipher this and how to do this, but we're going to have fun. And I'm going to give examples. So when I'm teaching in a class on how to cook a steak or how to do uh, ribs or how to do an upside down cake on a grill or whatever, we're going to have a blast. We're going to have fun uh, because I think you learn more when you're engaged and you're never more engaged than when you're laughing. And so people may leave and like, you know what? I can't remember what he said to do with these pineapples on this cake, but I laughed when he did it. <laughs> so that's, that's my goal. But I want you to learn. I'm, if you don't learn something every day, you've wasted your day. That's, that's my motto. And then Zig Ziglar had a quote and it said, if you're unwilling to learn, no one can help you. But if you're determined to learn, no one can stop you. So my thing is, if you're going to call me in to learn, I want you to learn. And, and, and I'm not going to just go give you facts about, you know, you need to inject here. You need to flip it here. I want you to have fun doing it. And part of it's going to be me just being a, a hoot and a holler, trying to, trying to make you laugh as we, as we do it. That's, that's my goal anyway, because I think you'll learn better that way. So, Vic, if, if I'm asking you, uh, I say, 
Vic, Vic, I got to print a business card for you. What what's going on that business card? You know, there's there's limited uh, words that you could put, but because you are your career, what you do now encompasses so much. What 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 are the few words that you're putting on that business card to encompass what you do? You know, I could be I could be philosophical and say Vic Clevenger, student, because I'm always I'm always wanting to learn. Or I could be Vic Clevenger pitmaster because that makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. But right now it's just gonna be cook and teacher and writer or speaker and writer. Um that's that's it. Just those three words. I cook. I'll give presentations and I write and I want you to, and I try to do it in a way to where uh, if I'm speaking or cooking or writing, I want you to take something away from it. So it's, uh, oh, you're going to laugh. Or I could say Vic Clevenger (laughs) hiring. You're going to (laughs) laugh. You know what? I think that's right. I I think it's very true. I I think so Vic in five years, five years from now, and this is where I ask all the philosophical questions. Oh, yeah. Uh, five years five years from now, uh, what's Vic Clevenger doing? Uh, Vic Clevenger is down in Key West with his girlfriend, who will be his wife then, Candace, drinking some sort of icy frou-frou drink, smoking something, and talking to Jimmy Buffett. How's that? Ah, all right. <laughs> down in Key West. Nice. Going to Margaritaville. That's great. Going to Margaritaville. <laughs> That's Jeff's. Jeff probably would, would join you. Oh, yeah. Come on down. I mean, that, that's in five years, I don't want to be five years. I'll be 58, almost 59 years old. I don't want to be looking to retire. I want to look to having a better life than I've got now. But I still want to travel. There's so much of the world I want to see, so much of the country. Um, if, if I don't know how where all your listeners are. I know they're all over the place. They really uh, but are. But our world, our world is is great. I'm, my girlfriend's from South Africa, and she's all the time telling me South Africa this, South Africa that, and I can't wait to go there. And then I've taken her all over the United States to places that a tourist wouldn't go. So there's and that and food has taken me there, whether competitions or a, a conference or something. So we've gone to places that a, a normal tourist wouldn't go. So if your listeners are looking for a place to go, just pull out the atlas, man, and throw a dart. Because our country has so many cool places to visit. Our world, if you have the means, our world has so many cool places to visit. Um, but if you want to drive someplace, just go. So I, I want to keep traveling. I want to keep cooking, writing. I, I love to write. I've been writing for almost 30 years, over 30 years. Uh, so I just, I dig all that, man. I just... I'm a, I'm a giver guys. I just, I just want to give to people. <laughs> and you, uh, <laughs> when you, when you're traveling in the United States, is it in your van there or is that your, um, your mode of transportation that you prefer? This is it, man. Yeah. I mean, I, if, uh, if Prevost want to sponsor me and give me a bus or a small RV, <laughs> I'll take it, you know, but right now it's just this van. I mean, we travel out of Florida and go all over the country and, and then be gone for a while and then come back to Florida, get us, get our tan back on, go to another part of the country, lose the tan, come back, get it back again. And that's just what we do. Nice. Nice. Vic, I was on your Facebook page. I always say that I, I call it, I mean, it, it's research, but it's really stalking. 
internet yeah. stalking. And yeah, um, I, I you saw should, you should be driving a white van. <laughs> hey, you, how do you know I don't? <laughs> hey, I'm, hey, what? It's between you and Jeff, man. <laughs> uh, but I saw a picture. I guess it was you and your daughter were preparing an, an alligator for uh, for smoking. Yeah, it was a few years ago. Me and my uh, youngest daughter, Rebecca, she's a chef, a pastry chef or baker. I don't know. I don't. I can't tell the difference between a pastry chef and a baker. Anyway, she likes to cook desserts. So, and she bakes breads and stuff. So I guess she's a baker. Yeah. So it was uh, just putting together an alligator. I love cooking the cool things uh, like alligators. Uh, I've done several of those. Me and the barbecue ninja, Craig from Royal Oak, we talk gator all the time. He hunts them. I haven't hunted a gator in years. Uh, me and my brother went with some friends of ours. Uh, but I love cooking alligator. And the best way, I mean, you come down to Florida. I think Jeff was telling me he was just down here in Florida. You, everybody comes down here, they order gator, uh, but it's always fried because that's the easiest way to do it. That's the reason why people have fried catfish. They have fried chicken. They have fried this. Because I just put it in a batter, toss it in a deep fryer, and I'm good to go. But then it gets chewy. The best way to do an alligator is to smoke it or grill it. Uh, you take that flesh and you put it on a smoker. There's nothing like it. And, you know, and then let it get that smoke on there. And then after about three or four hours, wrap it with some bacon. Shoot. Make you want to slap your grandma, man. That's good stuff. <laughs> when I saw you guys preparing it and then it, it had on it, it still had the, uh, the scales, you know, the skin mm-hmm. from... Uh, on its uh, feet and, and its head some, on its head. Yeah. And, and it looked, it was, it was very interesting. And it looked know, like a course. naked alligator. We was playing with in it. <laughs> so here's the thing. If, if those people, if your listeners want to learn how to do an alligator, here's, here's a little tip, smoke it about 225. Let it get to 165, Just like anything else. Take aluminum full, wrap its head and wrap its feet. Uh, so it doesn't take any smoke because if you do let it take smoke, it's just going to turn brown and leathery looking. It's not going to be good. Then when you unwrap it and you put it on your table for presentation, it looks like a real alligator because the smoke has turned the skin and the bacon you've put on it, turned it darker. And then your head still looks green uh, like a regular alligator should look. And then your your guests will just be over the moon excited for it. Where, where so do you- it's, it's good. Where do you get the alligator? Oh, I go my get my Walmart. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> uh, there's a couple of places you can get them. I down here in Florida, I just go out to the backyard and pick one right. out. Exactly. Uh, and just go to the local wrestle pond. it. If First, you got to wrestle it Florida, to the ground. Yeah. If you're, I tell everybody, if you're in Florida, tell the kids to keep an eye on the ponds because chances are they're going to see an alligator or two because they're in they're about every body of water once you get past Stocala. I get mine from Central Florida Trophy Company. Trophy hunts, Central Florida Trophy hunts, uh, which is out of Cocoa Beach. There's are either farm raised or nuisances, so they're either trapped uh, or farm raised. So it depends on what I'm using it for and what kind of. If it's farm raised, then I can get it, feed it to the public. If it's a nuisance gator, then I get it, I feed it to the public. I just don't tell them. Mm-hmm. And um, the there's the Louisiana Crawfish Company. That'll ship them out to you too. Okay, uh, that's good, another good place a lot of people go. Good to know. So, listeners, if you want to cook alligator, fix some ice. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm looking to go when we go to. I'm going to South Africa this fall, and they're lining me up a hunt 
to go uh, do some uh, hunt kudu and that kind of stuff. So, so I, I love cooking the exotic meats, things you don't see. And not, not that I'm bored cooking pig or, or cows or whatever, because uh, I still love them. But it, I want to stretch my, my culinary skills, my palate, my skills. So I am, I'm looking to cook either. I, I just cooked an eel here a few months ago. I went to a Chinese store in Orlando, Florida, who had live eels. I went and got three or four of them, put them in my sink, skinned them, and uh, threw them on a grill. And they uh, turned out all right. So it's, uh, there's a few things I would change. I would learn from it. But I'd do it again. Of course, I grew up in Kentucky eating rabbit and squirrel and and raccoon and, and groundhog and all that other stuff, deer. So that kind of stuff people don't – they used to squirm about it until Gordon Ramsay starts serving it in his restaurants up in New York, and then people are like, all right, this rabbit's not so bad. And I'm like, dude, that's what I grew up with. So, yeah. so I, I love cooking that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's what happens. One of these chefs on TV will make it, and all of a sudden it becomes a, you know, a delicacy or Well, yeah, they call like it venison instead of deer. Right. So we're like, all right, exactly. so that's fancy. And they call it hair instead of a rabbit. Right. Or, you know, instead of thumper. And I'm like, that's what we used to, you know, our, I, I tell kids now, when I grew up, we'd go to school. We'd, we'd a lot of times go hunting before school and still leave our guns in the truck as we pulled into school, sometimes with rabbits laying in the back, sometimes with squirrels uh, in the coolers or whatever. And then then you go home and you clean them or whatever. So that's, that's how we grew up or we'd stop on the way home from school and go, go rabbit hunting. So it's, it's a lot of things that, that people don't realize. It's the way we had to eat growing up because you're, you know, you grew up poor or whatever. And then you have that kind of stuff. And then people now call it a delicacy. Right. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. What about escargot, right? Oh yeah. yeah. Or, uh, or even uh, frog Mutton. legs. I just had frog legs at a Chinese restaurant. So that was, well, they said it was frog legs. So I took the word for it. The, cool for the, um, <laughs> the and, that, and that's the thing too, is a lot of these things, let's take barbecue, for instance, look at a brisket. That's perhaps one of the worst cuts of meat that you can have on, <laughs> on a cow and, and the ribs. How much meat really is on a rib of a pig compared to the rest of the pig? Not very much. But that's what they would give the poor people and the slaves and all these things. And they learned how to cook this stuff. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these things now that people are making a killing on, we're making a business out of, was well, just what poor people ate because that was all they had, whether it's a brisket or ribs or, or whatever. And uh, biscuits and gravy, for instance, a uh, biscuits and gravy is biscuits and gravy is just flour, flour. And if you're lucky to have sausage mm -hmm. from the hog you just did. Uh, you just slaughtered, uh, but it's just flour and milk. Everybody had flour and milk and it depends on how much milk you put in it, whether you get biscuits or whether you get gravy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and that's, that's, that's all there is really to it. And it's all poor people's food and people are making a killing on it now. And it's a delicacy. And I Chick love that kind of stuff. Chicken wings used to be a throwaway now. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> now they're over a dollar a wing. If you go to exactly. Place. Yeah. So I mean, look right. at Hooters. Hooters made a kill on having the best wings in the world. Exactly. So, so Vic, uh, I, I see a, 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 we're coming up on time, but where does your travels now take you for the next couple of months? So we're heading back to Florida. going to be piddling around. I'm going to be doing some comedy. I'm going to be opening up for uh, JJ Walker, 
Uh, y'all remember him? Oh, JJ yeah. Dynamite. Dynamite. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to be opening up for him down in down in Florida in a couple weeks. So we're, we're kind of staying localish for the holidays, just going piddle around here and there. And then January, uh, we pick it right back up again and go to different places and, and travel and work our way to a place near you. That's, ah. that's what you think. I hope it so is right a now, place near me because near us because we would like to meet you in person and yeah. uh yeah and, and be at the club that you perform at. That would be great. Yeah. That'd be awesome. I'd love to do that. Yeah. It'd be um and we just we throw down some barbecue. I had a guy challenge me to a brisket cook off, but he couldn't get a couldn't get the time to cook his brisket. because uh, he fancies himself as a big brisket cooker. So he's gonna do a brisket cook off and let the audience decide who had the better brisket. And, uh, so it was going to be, it was going to be fun. So, you know, you get things like that, but it's, it's a great thing. Just once I get my website updated, which should be updated here by the first of the year, my entire schedule will be online as we add to it and, and stuff. So just go to chimneycartel.com and you'll, you'll see where we'll be, whether it's comedy or cooking. Excellent. Well, Vic, we want to thank you for your time. It was very enjoyable. We wish you the best of luck. Merry Christmas. Happy new year. Happy holidays. You know, you too. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Vic. Thank you, guys. Happy, happy holidays to you, Jeff. I say it. I say it a lot. But wow. As I said in the beginning, in our intro, Vic Clevenger. Truly enjoyable. He was a lot of fun to have on. And Jeff, what do you think? Oh, he was great. Very enjoyable. Very personable. Very enjoyable. It was great. Do you think that there's going to be a bag of B&B charcoal arriving at my door anytime <laughs> soon? Wouldn't be surprised. I really could use a bag of B&B charcoal. Okay. You know what? Holidays are coming up. I'll go at Ace and pick <laughs> you up a bag. Oh, thank you. Now you know what to get me for the holidays. <laughs> yes. Jeff, a great, great episode. Two great guests. The Forgotten Game will make a great stocking stuffer. And and you know what? That um the grill that um of course the uh, chimney chimney cartel. Right, chimney cartel. Of course. I, I don't remember or know anything here, but the chimney cartel looks really like a really great barbecue. So that also yes. would probably make a great holiday gift. It would. And with that, we're gonna end it now with the poet and the musician. Shell Krakowski, Dave Dresser. Hope everybody enjoyed their Thanksgiving. Hope you enjoyed this song. We can't wait to see you on episode 113. See ya.